Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Dell Cinema technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Amazon Prime's Homecoming, directed by the creator of Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail. Starring Julia Roberts, Homecoming follows Heidi Bergman, a caseworker that helps soldiers transition back to civilian life at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. Four years later, Heidi has started a new life, but questions about why she left the homecoming facility force her to re-examine her motives and her past. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Michael Bloomberg, don't miss the mind-bending psychological thriller Homecoming, available November 2nd only on Amazon Prime Video. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me from a parked car outside of an ADR studio in Santa Monica, it's Andy Greenwald! I really like it when it's just literally true. Yeah, I, it's you not know, a bit. when there's nothing. No. I could have come up with something so much funnier, but I just wanted to go with the truth today. Guys, I just want to apologize for my audio fidelity. Please know that though my audio is not faithful, I am ever true. And uh, it was a joy to be in the studio the other day. And we'll be back there soon, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that you could make the argument that this version of you on this podcast, the character you're playing, is like when you tape over a mixtape 27 times and you're just like fading away. You know, like you're not watching much stuff. You're not here. Now you're on a phone. And it's like, yeah, this is like the 36th version of this. I really like that you're giving me that credit because that makes it sound like really kind of romantic and a little vintage <laughs> I was actually just thinking about how an entire generation and probably a large number of listeners just don't have this experience. I was thinking about how for like two or three years, the only version of Bell and Sebastian's first album, Tiger Milk, that I had was a Maxell cassette. It was like a 16th copy of a copy of a record. And I found out years later that it was at the wrong speed. And I still liked it. So what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is you'll have nothing and like it, audience. That's what I'm saying. Nobody here knows the anxiety of, you know, with a mixtape or even a CDR, the pressure one would put one on oneself to just nail those, like, the sequencing right. And if you let the song go too long and you screwed it up... And it was like you were slaving over these things, and you would like ruin it 80 minutes into a 90-minute tape. And you'd have to redo it, especially if it was for a girl. And Chris, I just want to say, I want to give you some credit here. I think people listening to this podcast probably assume that you made good mixtapes, which is true. I think Sam Esmail probably assumes that you put a lot of U2 on your mixtapes, which is not true. (laughs) However, the thing that people might not know about you is your handwriting, your penmanship on mixtapes was impeccable. Thank you. Thanks. I have like, it's a like very block letter. It, it had a lot of uh, dynamism to it. And so <laughs> speaking of dynamism, I do, do you guys, people might not know this. This might be servicey and interesting. I am just finishing an ADR session with the brilliant Rosario Dawson. And ADR is when you need extra lines or you need to like get the lines again because mm-hmm. maybe the mics didn't pick up or great or a motorcycle drove by repeatedly as was the case with one of our scenes on Briar Patch. And it's super weird. It's it's like it's not so glamorous 
for these talented actors who give it and bring it in the moment. And then they have to come to a random place in Santa Monica, which, by the way, does have very good coffee. And then basically lip sync themselves months later. It's pretty impressive, actually, just to watch them do it. I kind of just have this vision of Rosario Dawson standing there in front of a microphone with like a hot water and lemon and maybe some honey. And she just like leans into the microphone and she's just like, my wife. <laughs> it's not, you know, you know what the only incorrect thing about that beautiful picture you painted yeah. is that she actually got like two eggs over easy and some hot sauce and toast. Oh. And I'm not putting her on the spot and brought it out and brought it into the booth with her, which I, which I, I really respect. Yeah. I always have your daily dose of protein. Uh, Andy, today I just wanted to say that, so that this is Thursday show. And today I talked to Eric Newman, who is the executive producer and showrunner of <coughs> Narcos, which returns this weekend. And it's not Narcos season four, dog. I know you may have heard otherwise. It's Narcos colon Mexico. I think it's extremely, extremely Narcos season four that you just kind of had to really wind up the pitch. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I watched half of this season of Narcos about. Wow. And I talked to Eric about the show's move from Colombia to Mexico this season and the introduction of uh, actors like Diego Luna and Michael Pena to the mix. This season, it tells the story of uh, Felix Gallardo, who is a Sinaloan drug lord, and Kiki Camarena, who is a DEA agent who is tracking the rise of Gallardo's empire. It's different. It feels different from previous seasons of Narcos. I always feel like when I'm doing this, I'm like giving you a, like a Scientology pitch or something. But it's different than previous season of Narcos. It features different filmmakers working on it. Although there there are some names from from previous seasons like Andy Bias, but uh, Ama Escalante, who is a Mexican filmmaker, who that I have a lot lot of time for, has made a really some really interesting movies like Untamed and Heli. Uh, he worked on this season. There's just a real energy to this season that's a little bit different. It feels. More, and as Eric pointed out while we were talking, more like uh, Costa Garvis's Z. It has like a kind wow. of societal, like full screen, widescreen picture of society, of Mexican society in the early 80s that's really fascinating. It's a very dark story. Uh, you can't really spoil history. So it was really, really cool to finally talk to Eric about this show that I've been a fan of for such a long time. I love that you're saying a show that is literally about coke lords needed more energy going into the fourth season. <laughs> um, do you I think mean, you'll be, they, be given any, any time to Narcos this season? Well, I'm split. Because you know, and maybe some of our listeners know, that I am very passionate about our neighbor to the South Mexico. It's my favorite place to travel to. Many friends there. I love it very much. And I am completely lukewarm about Narcos. Yeah. So which half of the equation is going to win out? I, I can't assume, Chris, but I think it's probably safe to say that this show's vision of the nation of Mexico is slightly different than my experience. There. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, the one thing I will say is that they, Narcos is known for its location shooting. As Eric told me, like they, they shot a lot in Mexico city and in, and in and around uh, Mexico. So it's, it's definitely, even if you're just got it on mute and you're not even checking out the, the rise and fall of drug Lords, there's a lot to, to see both the more pastoral rural parts of Mexico and the cities. So uh, a lot of the action takes place in Guadalajara. Um, so it's, it's just a, a I, so far I really love the season. Chris, is it in continuity? Is it in Rogue One continuity is my question. You're asking if Cassie and Andor has a, a past as a Sinaloan weed farmer. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I I wasn't going to phrase it so well. Yeah, I think that is what I'm asking. No, but I will say that there is... I. I don't want to spoil anything. It has nothing to do with Star Wars, but I would say that uh, Narcos is aware of previous seasons of Narcos. <laughs> Narcos has watched Narcos. Okay, I will definitely check it out. And I'm actually, I'm, I am eager to hear this interview because separate and a part of my enjoyment of the show, the way they shoot it is fascinating to me. So I, I am very interested in that. You know, you, there's so much money in television right now. We we just saw, and there's so much money in entertainment right now. That I don't mean that as like a cliche. We just saw today Amazon making a deal with uh, Blumhouse to make eight features, and Apple making a deal with A24 to produce features. And there had even been rumors that Apple was in the market to perhaps buy A24, the uh, independent shingle that made Hereditary and, and so many other movies that get talked about on this pod. Ladybird. What's that? Ladybird and Ladybird. So, so many films that we wind up talking about on this pod and uh, that Sean talks about on the big picture. But, you know, Netflix actually and Narcos seem like they found each other at the perfect moment because Netflix, obviously, part of their business model is to appeal to audiences outside of of the United States and and to have a, a predominantly Spanish language show that right. features recognizable actors, but is also something that they can they can distribute to all the countries that they can just, you know, that they have services in. It's, it's sort of wild to see this international phenomenon. And the, you, you do see where the money gets spent. You do see that that sense of place that Narcos has and the ability that they have to go run and gun around Mexico and shoot in all these different locations and really give the viewer a sense of place is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because it might be one of the best examples of Netflix's tech strategy and algorithmic strategy matching up well with the content. It's well-chosen material. And I say that again, separate apart from my enjoyment of the previous seasons, like this is a really smart play for them and they've done it well and they've used their resources and their money because it translates quite directly into their algorithm. It's the type of story people like to watch. They like to binge on. And as you said, it's a dual language show, which plays really well around the world. Did you see that article in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week that shed a little bit of light on Netflix's decision-making, basically in regards to what they cancel and what they don't? I didn't. I recommend this to people. I tweeted it out. Uh, we can have the watch be tweeted out as well. It basically said that increasingly, I, I don't want to say that the two sides are at odds, but increasingly they are at occasional cross-purposes, meaning because, as we've said many times, Netflix is a tech company first and foremost, that they, you know, the, the data crunchers that look at the numbers and they look at the algorithms, it's not just how many people are watching each thing, it's who's watching each thing. And then they go to the content people here in Hollywood and say, you got to cancel this, or here's a reason why we should keep making this. And increasingly, as Netflix has trafficked in the star business and getting, you know, getting big actors, big directors, doing things for things that aren't easily quantifiable, meaning like to get Emmy nominations or to work with people that might lead to greater work opportunities or viewer opportunities down the line, they've had to push back. And apparently they've only recently begun to do that. And the case study in the Wall Street Journal story was Glow, that apparently the number crunchers were like, forget about this show. Uh, you got to cancel it. And twice now, they've been overruled. With good reason, I would say, because that's one of the best shows on TV and definitely one of the best shows Netflix has. But it was very interesting because usually this stuff is entirely opaque. Yeah, yeah, and also I think Netflix has been uh, part of its narrative that it's been using to sell itself to the Hollywood community is it's a home for creators, is you can make your stuff right. free of the usual overbearing notes process that might have been attendant with network television. So 
that competition is going to be really interesting. If people like like uh, Liz and Carly, you know, and the folks who make Glow feel like they can't make the show they want to make at a place like Netflix. Obviously, Glow has been critically really, it's adored and its fan base is very passionate and I'm glad that it's continuing to go on. But like, yeah, if that starts to be a competing narrative that some bot somewhere is going to tell you you need to have X, Y, and Z to make this show a success, I wonder how that's going to play with the very people that Netflix is trying to convince, hey, bring your shop over to our shop. Right, and not just that you need to change the show in this way, it's that this show is a square peg and it'll never fit into the round hole of maximized global viewership. And I wonder what you think, in light of this idea and this conversation, what's your take on this uh, Amazon and Apple basically buying tracts of land, which is essentially what they're doing when they're just buying stuff sight unseen from proven content creators like Blumhouse and A24? Well, it's two different stories because Blumhouse's story is about curatorial taste, but it's also about a very specific economic model. And in case people aren't familiar with it, Blumhouse basically makes things not on the cheap, but in a very smart way. So they often will pay like at at a, a lower rate to get someone, say, like Ethan Hawke, to participate in a movie, his salary in this and the production budget of the movie itself would be relatively low. But Ethan Hawke and the people who are sort of key to making the film will share in the profits, essentially. I mean, that's like a very generic way of looking at it. I don't have like the specific details of, of an Ethan Hawke purge deal in front of me, but that's from what, what I understand about it. And we've had Cooper Samuelson from Blumhouse on the show before, and we we've I've written about Blumhouse and as they continue to make these movies that cost $11 million and make 90 to $120 million, their coffers are getting fuller and fuller, and they've tasted Oscar success, or at least they've been in the orbit of that with uh, Get Out. So I think that Blumhouse is a very specific thing. I don't know how Amazon changes their specific, what they specifically do, because what they do is so much predicated on getting that, that profit margin against what they spend on the project initially, Right. H24 is closer to something like, uh, I don't know, like Fox Searchlight or Miramax had been in the past where it's just like this impeccable taste that they work with the best filmmakers, that they work on the most interesting projects, and that they have like a certain magic touch when it comes to marketing these movies. And uh, I think that that will be very interesting to see that collide with Apple. Specifically, the A24 thing that I'm curious about is this is a company that just put out Hereditary, which, Andy, you will never, ever, ever see. In fact, if you are on a plane nope. and someone is watching Hereditary next to you, change rows, dog. That's how scary that movie is. But Apple has kind of come out and said, we're interested in making content for the most amount of people possible. If you have one of our devices, we want that content to be acceptable to you essentially that's not essentially what a24 does that's not really what it yeah, no. and that's what i'm kind of curious how do you you're talking about pegs and holes like where does that peg go you're totally right and you've identified the the, the most curious part of it the amazon blumhouse play makes sense because blumhouse is nothing else if not dependable right they simply don't engage in projects that don't tick certain boxes whether they are genre or marketability or sellability you know they 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 don't the way that they use their economics means that they generally don't get burned by bad decisions because everyone makes bad decisions of course at some point or you know or, or things don't work out as planned in a creative field the apple one is well it's two things one is that it's par for the course for where apple is which is the press release business right apple 
has not made a show that anyone has seen. People don't even yet fully understand how people will see Apple shows, although most of us probably, you know, will have a way to watch them on our phones inevitably. So instead, what we're looking at is Steven Spielberg, Amazing Stories, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, and Steve Carell in the morning news show. And now the, the hottest indie film company is on board. What's curious is it seems like, and this is, of course, you know, A24 has not made bad moves either, certainly in the economics of their company. Um, so it's smart for them to, to get a windfall like this, I'm sure, without knowing any of the numbers involved. But it does seem to me, and this is a not 10,000, 100,000 feet take, it's kind of like Apple, the press release company, has been reading only the press releases about A24. Yeah. And what I mean is the last few months of A24 press have been mostly centered around Jonah Hill's movie Mid-90s, which I've not seen, is that A24 is the coming-of-age movie company. It's uh, Mid-90s and Lady Bird, and I'm sure there's one other, at least one other example to make it a rule of three. That's not at all what I would ca- characterize them as. I think that they're a discerning company that works with interesting filmmakers, sometimes young filmmakers. Uh, and I, well, I guess Moonlight would be the third. But In eighth grade. Coming of eight, in eighth grade. So the thing to remember about Apple is the message that they've been sending around town, meaning this town, is that they want to make content that Tim Cook can share from up on stage at a, at a press conference. They're not going to be making hereditary. They're not going to be making edgy stuff. They're not going to make Black Mirror, probably. They want things that are smart and intelligent and adult and classy, but I think on some level uplifting. So it seems like they want the A24 that made the uplifting parts of those movies. And what that means for the marriage going forward creatively is anyone's guess. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. All right, Andy, we're going to break here. Quick word from our sponsor, and then you'll be able to hear my interview with Narcos executive producer and showrunner Eric Newman. Season four of Narcos comes out on Friday night, and it's, oh, sorry, it's not even season four. It's Narcos Mexico. That comes out on Friday night, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Diego Luna is phenomenal in this season, and it's a really interesting uh, pivot for the show to move from Colombia to Mexico. And uh, Andy and I will be back on Monday with a special interview we did with Ben Stiller. We sure did. That was fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. Should we... Yeah, uh, Ben Stiller has a new show. Uh, it's on Showtime coming out on Sunday, I believe. And it is called Escape at Danamora. And it is about the prison escape from 2015 that captivated the nation, the upstate New York prison escape. So we talked to Ben for quite a while about that show and how he went about making it and what drew him to the material. And we will also t- on Monday be talking about Little Drummer Girl, which is on AMC. And that starts on Monday, but they're running that two episodes a night for three nights. So they're burning that off. Or they're creating a miniseries around it, depending on how you want to look at it. doesn't matter how you want to look at it, because it's one of the best shows of the year. I just want to say, I want you to look at it. I love the show. Chris loves the show. We will preview it a little bit more on Monday, and then after the holiday, we will get into it. Hopefully, all of you will be able to catch up over your break, because it's, it's just super. I love it. Yeah. All right. So here is my interview with Eric Newman. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system. I love the Sonos Beam. It's really easy to set up. You can work it through the app. You can use Alexa to command it. But what it does is it brings sports to life. If you're watching sports, it feels like you have courtside seats. It feels like you're at the 50-yard line. And if you're watching movies, all of a sudden, it feels like you've got a home theater system. And I come from an era where having a home theater, A, was 
crazy expensive. But B, you had to have like a team of experts come rewire your living room. Like I don't, I, I was not privy to that kind of thing. But like it was when you go to a friend's house and he was like, check out my home theater. He'd bring out like seven remotes to start it up. It was ridiculous. Now all that has changed with Sonos. The Sonos Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to TV, movies, podcasts, and more. And it all comes with rich sound that fills the room. You can enjoy the deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. All it takes is one cord to connect your Beam to your TV. The Sonos app walks you through setups step by step. And it syncs with your existing remote or you can get hands-free control. You don't have to worry about remotes at all with that built-in Alexa. That way, you can start a playlist, skip tracks, and pause simply just by asking aloud. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. There are job sites out there that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. Just like it's not smart by making the lottery the centerpiece of your retirement plan. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash watch to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., the Rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, listeners of The Watch can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Showtime and the new limited event series Escape at Dana Mora, directed by Ben Stiller and starring Benicio Del Toro, Patricia Arquette, and Paul Dano. Escape at Dana Mora tells the bizarre but true story of two prisoners who broke out of a maximum security prison in upstate New York and their twisted relationship with the female prison employee who aided their escape. Thrilling, emotional, dark, and unbelievable. In the town of Dana Mora, it's not just the prisoners who are looking for a way out. Escape at Dana Mora starts streaming this Sunday only on Showtime. To try a free month of Showtime, go to Showtime.com and enter the code THEWATCH. This offer is for first-time subscribers only, and it expires December 31st. And something of a dream come true for me. (laughs) I am joined by Eric Newman, the executive producer, showrunner of Narcos, one of my favorite shows on TV right now. It has been for a couple of years now. And Eric, thank you so much for joining me on The Watch. Thanks for having me. Narcos season four is coming out on Friday. Mm-hmm. Narcos Mexico. Narcos Mexico. Uh, I, I've watched half of the season, and I can assure people who love the show they will not be disappointed. I can also tell people who've never seen the show that they should check it out because it's a new chapter of the story in a lot of ways. It's very much so. Yeah. For the people who don't know, why don't you just can you just tell me a little bit about your role on Narcos and how it started? First of all, thank you for for having. Oh me. yeah, I'm my a big pleasure. fan, and this is sort of a, a thrill of mine. We both dream big, and they've, <laughs> they've come true. Um, Narcos was a was a film project that I started developing in the 90s. Maybe I was very lazy or just ineffectual, but I couldn't move it forward until uh until I would say late maybe 2012 okay. when I started to sort of realize, you know, it'd be better suited as as television. It's hard to tell these stories about uh about bad people, for lack of a better term, in a two-hour format. You'll never get to know them 
beyond their deeds. Mm-hmm. You know, guy blows up an airplane. He's a bad guy. There's no way yeah. to bring, you know, you're not going to bring the audience, uh, they're not going to find any real common ground. But the move into television around 2012 and then our first season, 2015, you know, was selling Netflix on this sort of insane idea of going to Columbia, shooting a show that was uh, overwhelmingly in Spanish, and they went for it and, yeah. and sent us off and, and you know, spent a year in Colombia and then another year in Colombia and then another year in Colombia. And the plan was always to move the show to Mexico. It was always to follow the flow of cocaine. Um, what began in Colombia, you know, was sort of the, for many years, the epicenter of the drug trade, eventually moved to Mexico where it remains. And so the plan was always to tell that story. What I didn't know until we got into the research was that in order to tell that story properly, you have to go back to 1980. You have mm-hmm. to go back to the the formation of the Guadalajara cartel and the kidnap, torture, and murder of Kiki Camarena as a DE agent who was on to them pretty early. Yeah. And and that was always, you know, I, I, I think going to Mexico, always the plan, not necessarily sure where to start, but there was this opportunity even in the early days when we were talking about it there was an opportunity for sort of an interconnected universe of these traffickers. They all knew each other. They all worked together. As you know, Chapo Guzman was a young, you know, lieutenant in the yeah. Guadalajara cartel. So you meet him early in the meet him early yeah. on. And and these guys, the guys were still who were still battling it out for supremacy in the drug game in Mexico are either the same guys or, if not, very closely related to the original guys. Yeah, that, we're, we're watching history be written exactly. in the last 30, 40 years, yep. of course. I'm really curious about the long-term planning on this show because in some ways I thought, you know, with it, it season three, I actually wound up loving season yeah, three almost I, as more than two yep. or, or more than the first two because I just was so surprised, I think, by the, the ability to pivot away yeah. from, from Pablo to Kali. And, you know, the Salcedo plotline, was my favorite one yeah. because I thought, wow, this is like a kind of a mole hunt thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like an espionage yeah. thriller inside oh, yeah. of this story. Yep. How do you guys talk about in the writer's room when you're talking about setting up a season, what you want to do with in terms of playing the genre, in terms of what stories to focus on? It's funny, you know, it, getting into television was always sort of this thing that I thought, oh, well, it'll be easy. You know, like we'll just kind of, you know, film producers were shifting into television I became a writer basically with with Narcos. I had not not something that I had really pursued, but becoming a you know a, a show running writer and looking at a show that and again I, I this was not my intention. It would have been much easier and more lucrative to have had a show with some continuity where yeah. the character where we, we didn't have to reset. You make a star yeah, and keep them for great. Ten years, and I could, yeah. you know, kind of start phoning it in at some point. But in this, you know, in this we, we we've set ourselves up for a lot of really hard work. And the hardest part about it is that sort of reset, which isn't just about characters or about setting. But what the show is, you know, and, and, and I'll often approach it with a sort of tonal model and usually a film because I, I grew up watching movies mm-hmm. and, and I love them. You know, in the way that season four, for example, is Costa Gavras, you know, in terms of its state of siege or Z, um, you know, that intersection between the criminal and the political. Season three was very much the lives of others. Yeah. It was really, a, you know, a, a Cold War thriller 
a sort of you know paranoia and you know a different kind of lot, terror. A lot of like spycraft. A yes. lot of like you know dr- dead drops and stuff. For yeah. sure. And that was you know intentional certainly. And then the the first two were sort of you know that the more conventional rise and fall. But mm-hmm. I would say you know. Scarface uh, obviously ins- continues to inspire us. In fact, it makes a, an appearance in season four. There's a scene where they're watching Scarface. But season two was sort of inspired by Downfall, in a way, the Oliver Hirschbiegel movie uh, mm-hmm. about Hitler's last days in the bunker, because the, the magic of that movie is you forget who those people are. You forget what they've done, you know, that they're just a bunch of people in a terrible spot and the, and the, the, the world falling down around them. And so what we sort of uh, aspired to do with Escobar was to somehow get our audience to forget the horrible, th- unconscionable things that he's done and actually feel for this guy as the walls close in. So, yeah. it, And I think, you know, we, I'm particularly proud of season three. I think it's our most accomplished we were learning as we went, but I think we've gotten steadily better every every season. Yeah, I mean, I, the show never seems inert. You know, even if the 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 sort of okay, so we're getting to learn the the building of an empire, and this guy who's facing the fact that building a drug empire is not like, unlike any other corporation, yeah. and you pay taxes or you pay bribes, that's whatever right. you want to call that's it. That's right. The thing that's different this year, I think, is certainly the characters and. There's something about the performance of Diego Luna that I think a lot oh, of people man. are going to be talking about He's for a so while good. because it's unlike, you know, you, you just think about that guy and you think of his sort of baby face and this yeah. kind of effervescent innocence and this kind of energy. Yeah. And he's basically already a Godfather part two by episode yes, three. That's right. So can you talk a little bit about identifying Gallardo as a character yes. that you guys wanted to build the show around, but also matching that with, with Diego? You know, the... As I said, the thing about television that's amazing, and, and I can come up with a million examples, you know, whether it's Jamie Lannister on uh, Game of Thrones or, you know, Stringer Bell on The Wire or, you know, I mean, Tony Soprano, probably the best example of a guy who is loved not for his deeds, but for who he is. And, mm-hmm. and the only way you can do that is with real time. You have to put the time into it and—, and you know, you have a guy in Game of Thrones, for example, who throws a kid out a window yeah. in the first yeah. episode. And wherever we are now in season five or season, or coming into season six, I think. Uh, the, new episode, the new season? Yeah, seven or eight. Or uh, it's eight. eight. Well, I mean, Jeez, it's like the wow. extension of set. Yeah. yeah. I love him. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've— He's for, the fan favorite now. I've forgiven him yeah. for that. So we have to be careful, obviously, because we're talking about real people. And we never want to glorify them. And I don't believe we do. And I think— We've been the recipient of, I think, a very lazy cri- criticism at times that, you know, oh, well, you know, you're you're glorifying them because, you know what, because they're, they have money and because they have some power. Their ending, in all cases, is always a bad one. But with Gallardo, just as with uh, more, more Pablo than the Cali guys, we needed to humanize him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Diego Luna is your actor— you're halfway there. You know, you have a guy that is just so endearing and great and empathetic. Yeah, you're you, starting with a guy who's going to score 20 yes, points. Yes, you tonight. already know. Yeah. yeah, he's coming off the bench and you're, <laughs> yeah. you can count on him. But in terms of how we constructed the character, we were hoping, and I think we've pulled it off, um, you be the judge, but by the time you realize that he's a sociopath, you know, that he's, you know, an approximation of a human being, 
you've already fallen in love with him, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and part of that is by, you know, I don't believe the world is made up of good people and bad people. I think it's sort of, at least the Narcos world is made up of bad people and very bad people. And what we sought to illustrate, and I think we did, is tell the story of, uh, of the complicity of Mexican government corruption, you know, and, and law enforcement with the traffickers. And, you know, the traffickers are not, it's not as simple as they're the bad guys. No. It's just not. And in doing that, you, you basically ignore the complicity of, of uh, you know, Mexican government, the indifference of American government, and the elephant in the room, which is this enormous demand that the United States represents for, for illegal drugs. We're the biggest market in the world by far, and we seem unable to even attempt to address that the way that we should, which is you know probably declaring it a public health crisis and rather than criminalizing and putting right. people in jail, actually work on the de- diminishing the demand, which is the only thing that diminishes the supply. But back to your question, in terms of Gallardo making him a guy that you like and would want to spend— 10 hours with, you know, it's part Diego and part how we chose to draw the character. And Gallardo is interesting within the world of the show because I think that a viewer's watching and they're like looking for, they're looking for the why. Mm-hmm. And you guys ask the why quite a bit. You know, you ask other characters, ask Gallardo, why, why do you want you to do this? this? Yeah. What Not... Oh hey, like I understand you need to make a couple bucks with weed, and yes. and and that's that's fine. And I I understand you want to consolidate and yes. kind of professionalize this. That makes sense. But when he's making the move into cocaine, there is this almost philosophical question. Yeah. It's like why do this? You yeah. know, and and we watch this character search around in the dark for the light switches to yes. to figuring that's it out. Is well that put. how did you guys kind of talk about that it, in the room? It, it was always an Icarus myth. It was always you know a guy that was going to fly too close to the sun. You know, you look at, at Escobar, Escobar, each of our, our traffickers, our sort of marquee traffickers, has a different relationship with the government. Mm-hmm. Escobar believed in the sort of tradition of, you know, Latin American banditry that he could resist the government. He could, he could fight the government. Bad idea. You can't. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you you can't. Eventually, they're gonna they're yeah. gonna, they're gonna keep coming. They're gonna win. The Cali guys, more cynical, more sophisticated, less emotional, sought to buy the government, and they almost did. Mm-hmm. They almost pulled it off. Um, Felix Gallardo sought to partner with the government. More, you know, in many ways, a more insidious, more cynical approach, but probably smarter. And because the traffickers continue to be partnered with the Mexican government in some cases. He saw that as the ultimate means of his protection. He, he was a guy who came up in Sinaloa. He had worked for the governor of, of the state. He saw that you don't have a chance unless you've got— that the real power in in Mexico is, is in the government, mm-hmm. in the hands of the government. It's not in the hands of the people. I mean, it's— it has been for you know it was for seventy years a a faux democracy. You know you had one political party that never lost a a seat. Yeah. You know for seventy years um, until they did, and then that created its own issues. But if you come up in that in that world, you're going to see that if I can stay on the right side of these guys, if I can make myself indispensable 
to them, I'm okay. I can go the distance. And he got pretty, pretty close. And then, you know, as close as he gets, there's always someone there reminding him that he's not of that course, close. Whether yeah. it's the governor, of, you know, is saying like, it's 200,000 for me, yes. and it's 100,000 for you. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about two things here. One is the look of the show. Sure. And also, what goes into creating the look for that show? So, uh, Amad Escalante is a filmmaker. That uh, amazing, when I when yeah. it was announced, I was almost as excited that he was going to be a part of the show this year as I was with Diego Luna yeah, and Michael Pena. He's amazing. Uh, if any of our listeners have a chance to see a movie called Helly, oh, uh, so if great. you have the stomach for it, Holy it's it's, yeah. it's one of those like watching like that. It's like seeing like Steve McQueen's Hunger for the first yes. time, where you're just like, I can't. Yeah. This is so harrowing. It's really good. Can you talk to me a little yeah, bit about meeting I mean, him and I, getting him involved? I am. You know, because I was a, a film producer for so long, I, I've i always been drawn to filmmakers. I think that um, television has historically devalued the role of director. I mean, I think there are some amazing, amazingly talented directors working in television. But occasionally, and I've seen this with shows, there's sort of a paint-by-numbers aspect to it. Yep. And, you know, it, it, television was for a long time sort of the revenge of the writer, so now the writer gets to tell the director what to do, and that isn't always the best thing for the for the show. I, I think the best version of that is a true collaboration. And so I've been able to sort of exercise my you know lifelong love of of foreign cinema yeah. to draft these amazing filmmakers who many of whom have never done television before. Like Amad Escalante, incredibly talented. Um, Alonso Ruiz Palacio, who's, I mean, his episodes are spectacular. Yeah. If you've seen Museo, it's a great movie. Gueros was the film yeah. that I had seen that I thought, like, I got, I want to work with this guy. Andy Bice, who's my, you know, uh, the Colombian director and very much my partner on the show since season one. Um, Jose Padilla, who yeah. was, you know, who's, was my partner in the very beginning and the, the guy that— Kind of initially set up yeah, the sort of I mean, visual I, guidebook for the show, For right? sure. Yeah. It is, he is definitely—he um, deserves a lot of the credit for what the show uh, became mm-hmm. because he helped establish the identity of the show. You know, the look of the show, uh, you know, when you're working in period, you know, you sort of have an obligation to— you know, be respectful of that period and, and pl- place as specific as Columbia. You have a certain color palette. We've always treated it as a 10-hour movie every mm-hmm. season. And so, you know, we're, we're looking for the highest possible, for lack of a better word, resolution. And I think we construct some beautiful shots and, you know, looks, it's incredibly well lit. And we've had some continuity in that department. You know, it's, there are only a few of us who have, been on the show the whole time, the whole time yeah. and one of them is, a, is our gaffer who's amazing uh he's, he's brazilian so we we've got you know a lot of a lot of thought goes into that the the directors who join us like fernando coimbra um joseph lodka you know they they all sort of ex- expand the palette a bit and mexico is needed to look and feel different than colombia and I think that season three looks different than seasons one and two. It feels different, too. Yeah. The yeah. Amai episode, I mean, like, a lot of these episodes have, that sometimes they have, like, a comic energy in terms of, like, yeah. the, the the way some of the scenes are filmed. and uh, But then they have, like, that sort of incredibly immersive, that Costa Gravis look yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. The wedding scene in general, like, oh, I was just my, like, well, this is just, like... The Godfather. I mean, yeah. that's, we, we, we have, as... We have moments when we all when we, we we watch something cut together, or maybe even the dailies where we look at each other and we say like, 
okay, this is the this is exactly what we were going for. Yes. You know, for me, I wrote a scene in season three, a dance scene with Pacho Herrera. Is this dancing. from the first episode? Yeah, yeah. So this is that's maybe one of my favorite yeah, scenes in the whole entire too. show. And as good as it may have been in my mind. And it probably wasn't as <laughs> as good and good in my mind as I thought it was. But as good as I thought it was in my mind, without a director, without Andy bringing it to life, um, it, it it just wouldn't have been the same. And it's incredible. And I think the wedding was also that's an Andy Bias ep- episode as well. And that wedding is just it looks spectacular. It looks like The Godfather. Well, it's a I, I wrote a piece basically like where that the Pacho scene was like pretty much the centerpiece. I wrote about that scene because I think that something that happens in that that doesn't happen in other television shows is it, the action is the action that happens in the, in the scene and it obviously ends with this horrific violence. Yeah. But the sense of place that you get in that bar. How great is that location? And the river. Yeah, it's Cali. And the way people are dancing yep. and the sense you get of the people who are there and yep. how it's different than the people you might see in the next scene or another scene and the little customs that are going back and forth about buying each other drinks and, yep. but also kind of shading each other. But the lighting, the yep. the this it takes the time to put you there so that you get what's going on. And yep. the same stuff happens in the season in Narcos Mexico, the Without giving too much away, Kiki does find, and early on in the season, yeah. he finds Gallardo's sort of weed valley, yep. his marijuana yep. valley. Yep. But you guys take him step by step from the bus to the bar to another yep. bus with a hood, walking. Yeah. You know. That's Andy's. And as when well. you get Andy there, Bryce. you earn it. Yep. And that's sort of an amazing thing to have the opportunity to do. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, we, we are, I'm incredibly grateful to Netflix, not just for supporting me personally and, and you know, basically convincing me that I could do a job that I never thought I could do. I had never even contemplated doing it. But also for the freedom to do things like that. What I mean, are you yeah. guys building those scenes out of? Like, what kind of research goes into it? Is, it, is there a newspaper photographs yeah, from the a, time period? There's, there's a lot of—it's um, funny, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of— uh, Photographic evidence. I mean, well, obviously, we have footage of yeah. we have pictures of Kiki at Buffalo, which is the the ranch that he that he discovered, but not a lot. I think a lot of our stuff comes from films that we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, because we're just we're all kind of nerdy and we're just into you know we'll talk about stuff that we watched yesterday. We were in the office watching Long Good Friday, you know, the the Bob Hoskins movie, yeah, because it was sort of inspiring something for us. But like we're we're sort of. We're we're into that. I mean, obviously, Goodfellas was a big part of what influenced Jose and me in in season one, and you know that the evidence of that is everywhere, and it continues on. I mean, obviously, the voiceover, which was a a big part of uh, that, was actually partially driven by a little insecurity about having so much sure. Spanish, yeah, you know, and wanting to have you know even. And if now it the was, voiceover's kind of become a character. It has, yeah. yeah. And I think it's gotten. I think we've we've figured it out. You know, it's a little. It's it's. I think it's more effective than it's it's been. You know, you said something about the 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 humor in season yeah. four, and I think it's some of our funniest stuff. I mean, you know, Tenoch Huerta and Joaquin Cosio, who are two of the best actors I've ever worked with mm-hmm. in my life. I mean, uh, hands down, uh, who who provide a lot of the sort of you know comedy. Humor, rather, in the in it. Humor was important this season because this is a really dark season. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You know, not even, it's not even where it ends. It's also where it starts. It's just, in many ways, our darkest season. 
partially because there's no happy ending. You know, Colombia kind of outran its its narco past. You go to Medellin now, you know, yeah. Medellin was the murder capital of the world in 1993. And now it's kind of spectacular. Mm-hmm. And and since we, you know, have been there, I can't tell you how many people I know who have told me that they went to Colombia on vacation because they saw our show and and loved it and thought it was, you know, it is a spectacular place. In Mexico is still struggling a bit. Yeah. And we say that up front in the voiceover that this is a story that doesn't have an ending, which is, you know, for the time being, is sadly true. Where did you guys shoot mostly this, this season? We were in Mexico City uh, quite a bit, but we were in Hidalgo, San Luis Puerto Si, uh, Puerto Vallarta. We were in Morelos. We were all over. You know, anywhere where we thought we could guarantee safety, you know, there are definitely yeah. places that are dangerous for sure. Do you guys have a method now? I mean, like, do, do you have to, like, basically indoctrinate someone like Pena or Luna into saying, like, okay, this is how we're going to shoot on location, and this is, like, what it feels like to make an episode of Narcos? You know, I, I think it feels—I think people are surprised that it feels just like any other movie or show. It's yeah. the same thing. You know, on day 12, you you realize you're sick of catering. <laughs> and, you know, your trailer is not as big as, you know, the other guy's yeah. trailer. It's all the same stuff. And because it's a very Latin crew mm-hmm. and, and and the majority of our cast is is also Latino, they're used to it. I think it's harder for the Americans yeah. to come down. They're like, whoa, like, okay, you know, this. And, it, and a lot of it is just anticipatory, you know, fear. Just like, what is this going to be like? And, and I think pretty much every... One of our American actors who's come down has left feeling like, wow, this is this was great. Yeah. You know, no one is, uh, at least they've never told me. Maybe they are and they just don't want to complain to me. But we don't have the sort of miserable, like, get me out of here. It's such a great experience being in, you know, Colombia was spectacular, but Mexico is great too. I, I love it. I have a bigger question. Yes. That I've been struggling with probably— I struggled with it last year when I wrote about the show, and I, I think I talk about it a lot with people who are also fans of the show. Why do you think that this subject matter remains so fascinating to people? I think because it is— I mean, from from Miami Vice, but even from yeah. Scarface, like, why is it that we're so fascinated by the drug trade and the people who perpetuate it and the people who fight against it? And I think that— uh, and it obviously changes over the years. You know, you, you, we forget that Miami Vice and Scarface, for example, the De Palma Scarface, were pre-crack. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't have the same—the uh, stakes were not as high. You know, so I think there was a time, and maybe you can liken it to Prohibition. You could be a drug dealer, as Tony Montana was, and be in a film and be— sympathetic. You know, mm-hmm. you're not, you know, you, you, they don't really touch on the, you know, poisoning children stuff. I think it changed. The perception uh, back then being that it was really a rich person's Yeah, it was and, a bunch yeah. of rich people. Yeah. Crack, crack changed that. And obviously, you know, I remember, you know, my age, I remember Len Bias, you know, yeah. basketball player dying in Maryland, uh, headed to Boston, who, who, who OD'd. It was kind of the first a celebrity death from cocaine that I can remember. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, Belushi was more uh, a mixture of cocaine and heroin. But again, this was sort of— Did you of, ever read the uh, the George Pelicano's book, Sweet Forever? No. It's set around the summer before Bias dies. Really? Like, like the, tor- the NCAA tournament. Sure. And then into, the, like, the, that summer and then the draft no and everything. And 
it's a crime story that's happening, but in the background of is, all these guys who are living in D.C. is yeah. Len Bias is going to the NBA, Len Bias is going to the yeah. NBA. And then, no, it was, a, it was a really, a, uh, I think, an awakening. You know, we just did a press tour in Singapore and India. And, you know, they're, they love, it's a giant show in India, which mm-hmm. is incredibly flattering because I, I'm a fan of Indian cinema. And it's been almost impenetrable to us in terms of our films. And they have their own industry and they, you know, they'll take... The Avengers, but, you know, they're not taking, you know, uh, Bridge of Spies. Sure. You know, they're just not, they don't, yeah, they, you know, like, yeah. so, so you know, it's, it's flattering. But I think what appeals to uh, globally, and I think it's something that we all share, is uh, obviously we're all affected by drugs in one way or another. And we might have different opinions about what to do about it, but I think it's become, in the last 30, 40 years, undeniable. Um I think that the corruption around it, the money that it generates, the fear, both legitimate and illegitimate, that that it it sparks, I think it's this thing that weirdly is more complicated than communism was, and more complicated than you know fear of of uh, fundamentalism, you know terror. Yeah, I think it's this sort of thing that if you really stop and think about it. It's so much bigger than anything else. I would say the environment is gaining, you know, but but if you look at the fact that opioids will kill more people, twice as many people a year in America than the Vietnam War killed in its entire run, yeah. you shudder to think. And I think that, you know, maybe narcos is a way for people to experience it in a way that isn't so horrifying. I also think that the authenticity of it, the, the the reality of it, you know, that we're telling a story that the events of which are true. Obviously, we have to take some license. Sure. So we can't get in the heads of these people. But I think that that also sort of appeals to people in a way that, you know, it, not that it's educational. It certainly, that's not the intent. But I think that it feels legitimate. Yeah. And people like that. I've always kind of thought about I don't know why I'm always drawn to it whether it's it's stories like Narcos or whether it's something I just read this novel called Cherry uh that came out this sure. year um yeah. then it, it's about a guy who comes back from Iraq or addicted to heroin yeah. and starts robbing banks. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that people are drawn to about it is because it often makes characters confront the abyss. Yeah. And it's an abyss that's kind of like just underneath the hood there. Like yep. you can you can go through your life and not l- look into the abyss that way. And you can go through your life and not wonder why this neighborhood is the way it is and mm-hmm. the next neighborhood isn't sure. or why this person's in prison and the next person isn't. But if you want to look at it through this lens, it becomes endlessly fascinating. And it is one of the things that's fascinating about Narcos Mexico is specifically with the Sinaloa guys that you're talking about, mm-hmm. it's a lever of power. Yeah in a world where these guys don't have that many levers. No. Like, oh, well, I mean, you have a, you know, the, it's not a coincidence that, you know, these societies, you know, Colombian society and Mexican society are incredibly classist. There is no movement. You're not going to rise, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe you can find some way to make a bunch of money, but even that is is, you know, discouraged. And so this becomes, for many people, it becomes a way up and out. Um, it's, it, there's, you know, upward mobility in being a trafficker. 
And I think that the compromises that you're willing to make in a world where compromise is all around you, where you have, you know, you have had politicians for years who on a regular basis betray public trust. You know, they, they, they get elected and then fill their pockets. And the same is true of police. You know, mm-hmm. you, you call a cop after you've been robbed, you're more likely get to get again. robbed again. Yeah. You know, so, it, and we never try it. Look, we I don't, think there's a line where it's like, we're going to call the cops on the cops. Call the cops on the cops. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we don't seek to excuse the behavior of some of these traffickers, but we do hope to sort of explain it. You know, I think that the complexity allows people to watch the show and walk away with a, and again, I, I'm, I don't know that people can change, minds change anymore. It feels like we're sort of in this sure. period where like you look for reinforcement of what you already believe. But our hope on the show is, with the show is that that people will look at it and think it's more complicated and perhaps think that, you know, the, uh, the efforts that we've, the steps that we've taken, the efforts that we've made in the drug war have, have probably pushed us further away from and cost us lives. Yeah. And cost so many. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. and it's, and you know, it's, it's, it's gotten worse. You know, we're, we're now in maybe the, you know, fifth or sixth era of yeah. the drug war in Mexico yeah. where you've got, and a lot of the players remain the same. In fact, you know, Rafa Quintero, who, you know, is a, is a focus of season of Narcos Mexico was released from prison last year and immediately returned to his perch atop one of the, you know, the, the big cartel. So, it's the same players, and they continue the it's the same battles and the same corruption and the same American indifference and wrongheadedness. And you know, I think uh, it, it remains fascinating, perhaps because it continues to just spiral out of control. I want to let you go. Can't really spoil history, but yes. I'm, what I'm hoping is that maybe you'll give us a call in a couple of weeks so we could talk about some of the details of season yeah, four. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Okay, sure. awesome, Eric Newman. Thank you so much thank for joining me today me. on the Watch. Thank you so much. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. It's super simple to set up, but if you don't want to bother, Sonos will send someone to do it for you. That's right. If you live in any major metropolitan area, up and running, we'll have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. Man, it's like Sonos makes this pretty easy in the first place, but if you're daunted at all by the process, having up and running come through is a breeze and you just get that extra level of security and confidence in the fact that you have the best setup possible for your living room. Just order from Sonos.com and select up and running at checkout if you qualify. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Showtime and the limited event series Escape at Danamora. Don't forget to check out this new series directed by Ben Stiller and starring Benicio Del Toro, Patricia Arquette and Paul Dano, also starring Bonnie Hunt, Eric Lang, and David Morse, along with Michael Imperioli as Andrew Cuomo. How about that? Escape at Danamora starts streaming this Sunday only on Showtime. <laughs> 